Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. So I can't tell you how excited I am today, just like I've been excited for the other episodes. But the reason I'm excited today is because we have Sarah and Christine from Glow Recipe here. Um, and thank you so much, guys, for joining, even in this virtual environment with all of the new technology that we're testing out here. I think today is going to be going to be a great day. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Of course. Um, and, you know, I think not only am I excited because Sarah and Christine are here, but I think obviously the brand that you guys are working on is skyrocketing through our rankings. So if I can read a couple numbers here, I think you guys are you did $54 million in EMV from March 2019 to March 2020, which is 151% year over year growth. I don't know if you guys knew that, but uh, that is, that's not easy to do, uh, particularly in this environment, I think. So congrats on Thank that. Thank you. Um, and, and I think, you know, before we get into the backgrounds, I know that obviously everybody's going through a lot. Uh, so hope that you guys are both doing okay from a personal perspective. Um, obviously, being in New York, I think is is tough around this time. But uh, you know, are you guys holding up okay? Yeah, we are. I mean, I think we're all staying home safe. Um, we're fortunate that the whole team is healthy right now, and we're all plugged into Zoom and different you know channels and technology to really connect closely with the team. So we actually, this Zoom format is very familiar to us because we're doing this every single day, all throughout the day. Um, and we've been, you know, adjusting pretty well because we are a digitally native brand. So we're just going back to our roots yep. and focusing on what we, how we started this all anyway. Of course, how not, I didn't, I'm going to get a little sidetracked here, but how much of your team was remote before this happened? So our field team members, the team members that focus on going into the Sephora stores to educate, were always remote, except for the field team members that are based in New York. Um, but with that exception, all of our team was based in the New York office. We had an office in Chelsea, okay. we still do. Um, but the team has adjusted amazingly well to this new situation. We are using Zoom, chat platforms, emails. Um, and in the beginning stages, we've had to set some ground rules around, you know, when to communicate for, via this channel versus that channel. But after those initial discussions, it's been running very smoothly and we're very proud of the team. Absolutely. It's certainly a good time to be a uh, Zoom or Slack shareholder right now. For sure. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how you make those decisions. For us, it's, you know, you just don't want to have any interruptions. You want it to be really smooth and easy. And uh, yeah, I think they went, what was it? They went from 10 million users to now it's 300 million users oh, wow. in a month. That's I'd love the 30x in 30 days. That sounds pretty good It sounds really great. Uh, <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> it's amazing they've been able to keep up the quality. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, let's go ahead. So the, the plan for today is to go through your guys' backgrounds, learn a little bit more about who you are. Obviously, you know, I've listened to the podcast. I've read the articles. I've got a good feeling for it, but, you know, not everybody does. Um, and then we'll also talk about Glow Recipe and your journey to building that, as well as what some of your marketing philosophies are. Um, you know, this podcast is really targeted towards people that aspire uh, to get to the positions that you guys are in, as well as to learn a little bit more about kind of your marketing approach and philosophies. Um, so that's the plan for today. Uh, does that feel yeah, good to you guys? sounds great. Sounds good. 
Cool. Um, so, and looking through your guys' backgrounds, I think that, you know, it's obvious that travel was a really big component. No, I don't mean travel <laughs> as in, you know, uh, like fun travel, but you guys are moving a lot through different cultures, et cetera. What, you know, as part of your upbringing, what, what made that difficult? Like what were the hard elements of that, you know, moving from, you know, one culture to another, one country to another and having to adapt, you know, do you think that played a role in kind of where you guys are at today? Would love to know a little bit more because that's just not, you know, I grew up in the same place basically my whole life. So I don't really know what that experience is like. Yeah. So Christine and I both actually grew up in different parts of the world. And I think that's also why we're, you know, we've been good friends and good founders because we do have that foundation and understanding of each other. Um, but personally, for my story, uh, growing up, I was, I would say, fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to study in international schools in Seoul and Hong Kong and um, spending time with people from every culture in the world at such a young age. And I think that really gave me a really, really special perspective and broadened my horizons. So I think very early on, you know, versus thinking of it as a challenge, I, I knew that I wanted to one day work in a large global city like New York or Paris. And I think that really led me to focus on my studies in um, English literature and linguistics when I attended my university in Seoul. Yeah, similar for me. I grew up in the States, um, then moved to Korea for middle school and then Australia for high school and then came back to the States. So that's three different continents before 12th grade. And it, it wasn't not challenging, but I would say that the exposure and the, the fact that you have to adapt to these new situations and understand cultures, understand language in an accelerated pace really was an interesting and, and life-changing experience. And I still very much think that I leveraged some of those skills learned during those early years, today a day-to-day -day for entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think, I mean, the only time I've spent, I spent about seven months in Australia as well. Ooh. And, uh, you know, but that's, I think that's not as difficult of a culture change, particularly because it was happening when I was already in my, you know, early to mid twenties. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit easier, but I know that when people are younger, that can be, that can be difficult. Um, this is more, so this is more a question for me than the podcast. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, so I'm sorry, guys, you probably don't care about this, but I, I'm curious. So what, in terms of the different educational systems, right? So how did the Korean educational system function versus uh, you know, the Australian versus the U.S. versus the the Hong Kong International School. Did you guys notice big differences in kind of the teaching styles or the approaches? <laughs> I, I, would, yeah. I would have to imagine there are, but I don't even yeah, know what they I mean, are. Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah go ahead. <laughs> I think huge, huge differences. Very, very, very keep it short yeah this is why i wanted to ask <laughs> very different I mean, for me when i lived in hong kong I, I went to an international school and that school specifically had an american system so it had american teachers and american textbooks so teaching styles were very much yep. american but again very very different from the korean educational system um i would say in a broad picture the korean education system really teaches the students who learn how to carefully listen to others and accept what they have to say um, before judging or jumping into mm. conclusions or having any reservations. So that's a very different mindset because on the other hand, the American education system teaches yeah. students to raise questions, you know, discuss and debate and, you know, before accepting any statement or assumption, 
you know, ask and challenge others is kind of how we were taught, right? And creativity and being, mm -hmm. you know, original were encouraged over anything else. So I think, you know, in a grand scheme of things, there are a lot of different changes, but overall, um, the yeah. Korean and the American are the two education systems that I can speak to. And I think that they can supplement each other. So I think both Christine and I kind of have this use, unique background where we can leverage what we've learned from two different worlds, because I think we were able to gain a pretty broad perspective and learn the importance of balancing the two, if you will. So for example, being a great listener and understanding the full context before jumping into a conclusion, but also addressing questions or any issues without hesitation and staying confident in our beliefs or the creative ideas that we are passionate about. Yeah, that's why all of our formulations are hybrids too, like the best of both worlds. <laughs> that's perfectly balance. said. It's the key. My wife, yeah. my wife and I balance each other out as well. Yes. Yeah. How was the uh, how was the Australian system? Was it fairly similar to the to the US or was there so having, significant differences? It's a good question. Having Korea sandwiched in between America and Australia was I think the biggest shock because the Korean school system yeah. is quite rigorous. So I went from an idyllic childhood in Louisiana. My dad was getting his graduate degree there. Being a voracious reader, I didn't do that badly in school. It, it was pretty easy. Yep. And then coming to Korea and suddenly being in this environment where everyone is like turbocharged. I've never seen such diligence um, at in the middle school level was a shock. And I found myself going to these academies after school until very, very late at night to keep up with my peers. Um, so at that point, that's when I made a PowerPoint presentation to my parents to present the <laughs> idea that I would want to, you know, broaden my horizons <laughs> outside of Korea for my, um, my high school education. And thankfully they accepted my presentation. Um, but it was, oh it was still a good experience because it grounded me in the fact that you can always, that sense of grit and perseverance <laughs> and outworking other people, I think is large part due to that middle school, those middle school years. The, the work ethic that you see in Korea, Japan, China, just kind of like puts everything else to shame. Um, I don't know, obviously there are elements of it that are unhealthy. Like I think the Japanese have a word that literally means to work yourself to actual death, um, you know, or, you know, the, Chi the Chinese have the 996, right? So 9am to 9pm, six days a week is like the, you know, some advocated work schedules. But um, that is hilarious. I can't believe you created a PowerPoint for your family. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever created a PowerPoint for my mom in my whole life. Not one time. Um, so yeah, so I think, so let's, so, you know, kind of getting out of childhood, obviously you guys both met at L'Oreal, um, and that's really where you guys started your careers and I think looking at, um, you know, having looked at your background, you know, you guys both spent a long time there, like nine, 10 years plus, um, which, you know, to come out of, you go from school to, you know, that's the first environment you're in, which is a large multinational and obviously, um, you know, the, the, uh, Korean arm of that is not as big as anywhere else, but it is going from big company to like very, very small company, which is just like the two of you. Um, what was that transition like going from big company culture to, you know, just two people figuring it out on your own, the two man band thing? How was that 
how'd you guys work through that? Yeah. So we get asked this question a lot. And I think the one thing that maybe a lot of people are not aware of is L'Oreal is a very entrepreneurial company. Even though it's so mm-hmm. huge and it has, you know, over 35 brands, um, every brand works kind of as an individual company almost. So, you know, I remember mm-hmm. even within L'Oreal, you know, transitioning from one brand to another was almost moving to, you know, from one company to another. And it really yeah. required a lot yeah. of, um, a lot of conversations and interviews and, you know, a lot of steps to get there. So it wasn't, I would say it actually was probably the best experience that both like, both of us had in terms of being individual, entrepreneurial, stronger, um, you know, finding ways to be resourceful. Um, you know, th- there was a joke in the company too, where the whole training philosophy was you kind of learn as you're doing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was very much true. Kicked into the deep end. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> And we learned everything that way. Obviously, we had great supervisors and teams that we worked closely together with. But I think overall, mm-hmm. that was sort of the approach to any role in L'Oreal. So so from that standpoint, when we transitioned into a two-person company, it was um, from an individual you know, approach perspective that was not so hard. I would say the one thing that was challenging was you know, we were, we were protected or we were in a bubble, if you will, in a company where we're doing a lot of marketing and product development and digital marketing work, but we weren't necessarily equipped to do, you know, finance, um, accounting, legal Mm -hmm. (laughs) operations. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we kind of understood the concept of it. We, we worked with these functions in our past roles, but we were never hands-on in these roles. So I think that was a huge learning curve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember we still joke to this day. We were reading contracts every <laughs> single day. Um, and we didn't know that there were so many agreement letters that we needed to review and so many details in every single page of these letters. And, you know, we, we were joking. It would have been amazing if we had, you know, if you, one of us had a legal, you know, degree or another person had an accounting yeah, degree yeah, so yeah. we can make our lives easier. <laughs> but, uh, you know, everything happened for a reason. And looking back, we learned so much. So even though, you know, we're not a hundred percent experts at these fields, we can comfortably speak to the experts in these fields and have, you know, very, um, uh, meaningful conversations with them being very productive and making decisions together mm-hmm. so learning curve um adjustment phase but uh it was all for a good reason yeah i mean when we started tribe i had a similar learning curve <laughs> right so my co-founder and i you know i came in with a kind of a sales and a little bit of marketing background and he came in with you know an engineering right. background um, but there's a lot of gaps in between engineering and sales. Oh, yeah. uh, those aren't the only things that you <laughs> yeah. need to know how to do, right? right. You need to right. Know finance. And I remember we decided what product we were going to build. We we're like, okay, this is what we're going to build. Like, this is it. And it's now, it is our core product now still. Um, and this is after maybe six to nine months in. And I was like, all right, John, like, go ahead, build it. You're the engineer. He's like, I don't think you know how this works. Like, he's like, this is kind of like, he's like, I'm like the construction crew. He's like, I need the the blueprints. I need you to, I need the architect. Um, and so right. he's like, so do you, so I was like, well, I don't know how to design. And so I just picked up and bought every book I could find on product design and then put together these absolutely horrible mock-ups. Oh, wow. um, but they worked. Um, yeah. And so uh, I was using a program called Basalmic, B-A-L or 
balsamic. Yeah, with it ends with a Q instead of a oh. C. Um, so yeah, it's intentionally designed to look really ugly, so you can just kind of like get the the uh, idea across without being you know caught up in the details. Um, Interesting. So, oh wow. So I've gone through a similar. Yeah, quite similar. We all went through that. Similar, yeah. yeah, we used to. Um, design our own emails and we look back on those emails and we, we cringe <laughs> like it's like powerpoint oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> fancy powerpoint mm-hmm. um but thankfully now we have a design team so you know having gone through that makes you grateful for what you you know have today well it also helps you i think be a better executive right because then you have at least an yeah, exactly. of like what that function yeah. is um which yes. is pretty critical, I think. We agree. Um, Absolutely. So talking about being executives, you know, one of the things that stood out to me when I was really, you know, spending my time researching you guys is the kind of co-founder, co-CEO, co-everything, <laughs> right? So you do all your interviews together, yeah. right? You run the company together. I think your backgrounds are actually quite similar. Um, and again, not to draw too many comparisons uh, to us, but I think for us, you know, my co-founder and I ran it very similarly for a very long time. Um, and we still do today for the most part. Um, I think the problem that we ran into was a, there was kind of two things. So one was a communication problem and the other was a decision-making problem. Mm-hmm. So as the company got bigger, um, you know, we weren't doing a good job of keeping each other informed, um, which then uh, kind of exacerbated the uh, decision-making problem, which is, hey, I need somebody to make a decision who do I go to, right? Like who is the person that I ask right. for this decision? And especially with me being, I'm on the road a lot. So I'm traveling or was mm-hmm. traveling uh, quite frequently yeah. before. So, you know, my director of reports wouldn't be able to get a hold of me. So they'd go to John, but John wouldn't have the information that was necessary to make the decision. Um, mm-hmm. And so now, right. you know, we kind of separated internal, external. So he's handling all the internal kind of decision-making and then I'm doing all the external facing stuff. So the webinars, the speaking events, yeah. the client interactions, whatever. So how have you guys navigated that? Is that something you've run into yet? Maybe the company isn't a big enough scale. Not that we're much bigger than you, but what is the, how have you guys navigated that? Maybe you just are much better communicators and that's not an issue, um, but would love to know more there. Yeah. So I think our co-founder dynamic is actually, to your point, really interesting because most co-founders are some co-founders out there are like kind of the CTO and the the sales or the CEO and the COO kind of dynamic that you just described, um, bringing different expertises to the table. And Sarah and I have had different brand experience, but ultimately we were at L'Oreal together for the bulk of our careers. And so we bring a lot of those kind of marketing tenants, those that product development approach, the digital marketing, all of that training um, from a somewhat similar source. I do think that that has been one of our strengths because when we make decisions, we make them together and it's after a lot of thoughtful discussion. Um, that's not to say we don't make decisions fast because we do and we're very nimble as a company, but having going gone through those decision kind of discussions um, have always enabled us to make better decisions. And then down the road, we look back and we're like, thank God we thought that uh-huh. out. Thank God we actually worked that out between the two of us and hammered it to a point where it was even stronger. So kind of like swords <laughs> forged in the fire, if you will. Yeah, totally. And that type of that type of discussion based approach is very much what we learned at L'Oreal as well. There's actually a conference room in L'Oreal named the Conflict Room. 
Oh wow! Because there's a lot of passionate, <laughs> like table thumping and and finger pointing, and a little bit of maybe loud yelling going on in yeah, that room. Yeah, I love it. But it's all done, and and that's not to say we approach our discussions that way. But that spirit of of collaboration and partnership still very much underlie how we work together. That being said, as the company has scaled, we have started to split certain accounts, certain retailer accounts, brands, projects. So that the team knows that there's a go-to for certain uh-huh. things, um, but they know that we're also dialed in enough so that they can always go to the other one for other co-founder for advice or input or sign-off. Um, and because we are on the road a lot, or were on the road a <laughs> lot, um, this had been working out for us fairly well. And for the more important things, we always make decisions together. So once again, going through that path of discussion, optimization, and then confidence that we're making the right decision. Yeah, and I think it helped that we started, you know, with a friendship first too, because I think we already had that level of trust, understanding, you know, we didn't necessarily have to explain everything in context with all the decisions because we kind of were like-minded in that sense. And I think that having this mutual support system and the fact that we can rely on each other because, you know, you do go through ups and downs as entrepreneurs. Um, I think that's been really one of the strongest, you know, drivers to our relationship, but also our company overall. And, you know, having gone through, especially the first year when we were doing like 3 a.m. calls with <laughs> Korean brands, we're hand packing, hand packing mm. hundreds of boxes and writing thank you notes ourselves. And, you know, those early days, the in the trenches mentality has really served as the foundation of our partnership. And I think it's just always going to be what makes it a little more solid. And even in the office, I mean, we're not in the office right now, but in the office, we actually share an office. We sit together almost side by side. <laughs> um, so <I'm... laughs> Our desks are it's like an L shape yeah. and they're attached. So, you know. Um when Christine types, I can nice. feel it too from my side of the desk. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a I'm such a loud typer. Yeah. My wife yells at me. I feel so like, bad. <laughs> it's like I'm pounding. She's like, you don't have to beat yeah. the keyboard up. Like, it's okay. <laughs> we travel. I mean, there are times when we share rooms together for, you know, whatever reason, budget or whatever it might be. Yeah. But those are like the times we actually come up with great ideas because we're brainstorming from, you know, sheet masking in bed. So, you know, I think there's a pretty deep sort of solid trust there that helps make decisions faster and more efficiently overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, so my co-founder and I lived together for the first three and a half oh, years wow. roommates with one other roommate. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, Which is wow. Even That's more very intense, right? next so level. She'd wake up, you'd have breakfast, <laughs> we'd have breakfast together, talk about work, like talk about what we're going to talk about, then go work all day, come home, eat dinner Whoa. together, oh, then like God. wake up at three in the morning and start talking. Um, and then when we travel, so we travel, we'd, we'd share Did it ever a bed. stop? Um, you share a bed? Whoa. Um, did the work ever, yeah. the work ever the time, stop? Was it nonstop work? Yeah, it was just nonstop. But it was it was also like like you guys said, it's kind of forged in the fire, wow. right? You, um, right? You know, we we actually the thing that we ran into was oh oh, oh. <laughs> okay, you're there. I'm here. No, I'm here. <laughs> um, just technical difficulties. Oh, these are to be expected. Um, so yeah, so the thing that we ran into that was weird is once we, uh, so we we both got married and like our wives didn't want to move in with us. Although we did propose <laughs> that as an idea, like you guys can both move in. We'll just all. Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But um, 
<laughs> but uh, so I had to move out. And so I moved out and uh, we actually lost a lot of communication. Like we like all of a sudden it was like we weren't communicating um, about things because, you know, during the workday right, it was right, like right. work, <laughs> you know. Um, so we didn't have that like hour in the morning or hour at night to like catch up on what happened that day and, you know, just casually. Yeah. So it's uh, we've gotten back into equilibrium, but it took longer than you would think. Uh, to get there. I guess you were so That's used point, to yeah. living together and you know sharing ideas over breakfast. It's like a new, oh different God. rhythm that you have to adjust. <laughs> That's a lot. Oh wow, it's, it was. It's incredible. I, yeah, I don't know how he it's did it. It's incredible yeah. that he did that. The I mean, Sarah and I already joke that we speak to each other way more than we do our own husbands because we're still late at night. We're still chatting each other. Like, what do you think about this? Like, what do you think about that? Oh. And so I cannot <laughs> imagine living together. That is a whole different level. I'm so yeah, me too. Up about <laughs> us. Yeah. 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 We, uh, I mean, we're like seven and a half years in and our wives have totally given up on the idea that they're going to communicate with us more than we communicate <laughs> with each other at this stage. <laughs> That's not even a question anymore. Oh, you know? well. Um, oh my God. So, okay. So back, I, I did have questions here at some point. So let's, uh, so Shark Tank. So I want to know more. This is another thing I'm just really curious about because I've never done it. And I would imagine most of the people that are going to listen to this have never done it. So tell me about that process. Like what made... One, like, where were you as a company when you decided to do that? Like how, for those that haven't seen the episode, like how deep into the process were you as a company? What made you decide like, this is the right thing to do? Obviously it's great to get the exposure and the potential investors. Um, and, uh, you know, but it is a process. I would imagine it is a time commitment. So, you know, what made you guys, this is what we're going to do. Um, and then tell us a little bit about the experience. Like, how did it work? You know, obviously you guys don't want to ruin the episode, but you ended up, it sounds like long-term didn't end up taking the investment. Um, so yeah, I would love to know about that whole experience. Yeah. So I'll speak about the, the, the why and you know, how we made that decision. Um, so obviously to your point, brand awareness was one of the top priorities as a small company and we were trying to do, you know, different ways with social media or PR, you know, outreach to influencers and whatnot. And that was great. I think, you know, we did definitely get some good returns on responses, but we still needed a threshold that we wanted to surpass and we had some specific business goals to achieve. So we decided that, you know, we wanted to be in front of 9 million people because at that time that was Shark Tank's viewership. Um, and we were both fans of the program. I mean, we had been watching that show for a while and we were very inspired by all of the entrepreneurs that were number one, you know, brave enough to be on camera and pitch their uh, business in 30 seconds and, and sell that idea to five amazing, successful entrepreneur um, businessmen who would be potential investors. And we, it was a challenge, obviously. And we thought it, it would be a long yeah. shot too, because it was very early on in um, our business, actually. So we officially had our site up and running by November of 2014. And we applied, okay. <laughs> we applied for Shank Shark Tank audition, I, I believe around February or March. And then we got um, the first audition mm -hmm. scheduled for April in New York. And the whole segment actually, it was a really long process. And the segment aired in December of 2015. So it was very oh, soon wow. and earlier on in our business, which is why we thought it was a long shot. <laughs> Um, but, but, but yeah. we were on a mission. I mean, we wanted to spread the word about Korean beauty overall because we thought at that time, and it was, 
very much so, um, you know, Korean beauty being kind of on the cusp of being trendy and such a hot item. And it took a while for it to get there. But I think we were seeing how some of the K-beauty products were sold as you know, promotional items with lower cost and not necessarily sharing the stories and the philosophy behind the formulations and technologies. And we didn't really think that that was doing justice to this amazing category. So we wanted our own sort of pitch to be shown to as many people as possible. And that's why we said Shark Tank should be you know, one of the things that we should do as a key milestone for the business. So I think another thing is we just never really thought the whole time we would ever go on air. Yeah. Because you're standing in line in a freezing winter day in front of the ABC studios with a thousand other people and the line is wrapped around the block all the way down Central Park. And you're like, I'm not going to make it in. But somehow you make it in. We present it to the producers. And then you just don't hear from them for months. And then you get a call and suddenly you have to submit an audition video, which we did very cheaply with a friend of a friend that we begged to take some videos of our day-to-day of doing conference calls at 2 a.m. And the video was pretty funny because it was us buried in our UPS boxes in our office taking calls, which was just a reflection of reality. Uh-huh. And then we submitted it and we thought, okay, it's been months. They're not calling us back. This isn't going to happen. And then suddenly it's like, can you come out to Culver City next week? So we're like, sure. <laughs> um, cancel all your meetings, fly out. But the whole time they're telling you that, you know, you might film. You might not even film, first of all. But you, if you film, you might not go on air. And you might be scheduled for air. But if something happens in the country and there's like some emergency broadcast, you're going to get bumped. And so until the day we aired on December 4th of 2 15, I like that you haven't forgotten the date. Oh, we'll never, never forget it. I will never forget this day because our Shopify also looked like, because we're on Shopify, our e-commerce, it looked like this in the back end. I've never seen it go vertical um, in that way, the traffic, the sales. And we had called them in advance to make sure that it wouldn't go down the server because we were nervous and, you know, 9 million people. Um, viewership is, is a big deal. They were like, it's fine. We've had plenty of Shark Tank brands before, which they have. It still went down for 10 minutes. And I, we also remember those 10 minutes as like the darkest <laughs> that <laughs> year because you're like, very dark. the traffic. Very dark. Yeah, you're refreshed. Um, <laughs> it got dark, but it came back up. We were fine. And then our entire team, which was still a small team at the time, had to descend down to the Brooklyn warehouse and pack for days just to meet the demand of what had come in. And it just set our business on a different trajectory, the exposure, the awareness, um, and just that experience of us coming together and honing our business story for the pitch even, even Mm. that was helpful because we had never taken the time to really do that. Um, And that really brought together our business to another trajectory. So yeah, really good memory. What's funny is we yeah. we kind of went through not nothing like that from a Shark Tank perspective, but mm-hmm. you know, from a fundraising perspective, we really just built our company off of revenue for a very long time and took a small amount of investment mm-hmm. along the way. Never really took the investment yeah. process seriously. And I think going through an investment process mm-hmm. is similar in a lot of ways to doing that, where you just really have to make sure that your business. I guess I mean that is an investment yeah. process technically. Um, you just have to make sure that you know your numbers, everything's yeah. tight, and it like. It forces you to really distill your business down to the kind of to the core elements. Very true. Um, 
did you guys, so, I mean, obviously you didn't end up taking investment from uh, the tank in the long run, but did you guys, do you guys have other partners that are part of the business or have you guys built it mostly off of cash flow? Yeah, and- it, we're still a hundred percent self-owned between Christine and I. And, uh, you know, we decided not to take the investment from- Not common. Not <laughs> yeah, it's common. actually not common, especially at this stage of our business. Um, we didn't take the investment from Robert because we were looking for a strategic partner. And I think at that time there were some different priorities between the two parties. So we wanted to make sure that we would, you know, hold off until we had that, you know, strategic partnership and mentorship. So we're Mm -hmm. still, you know, waiting for that moment to potentially take place. Currently we are fortunate enough to say, you know, it's always been profitable since month three. That's when we broke even. And, um, yeah, I mean, our, you guys know that, um, we launched our own brand and we're distributed in Sephora and Target and, you know, multiple other large retailers. And I think that growth has been really tremendous. So we are sort of self-fueling from one channel to another to make sure that we're not stopping with our innovations or anything with the launch pipelines, um, but still keeping everything healthy in terms of P&L. Yeah, I mean, it's super impressive. Um, I was curious. I didn't know coming in whether that was the case or not. So congrats, <laughs> guys. Uh, super hard to do. Thank you. Um, so what kind of talking about that pivot, that's a pretty big decision, right? Going from kind of selling other people's brands to really focusing solely on your own. Was there a catalyst there? Was it something where the other brands weren't doing well? Or was it something where, you know, that brand was taking off? So you just really needed to focus your effort. Like what? What caused you guys to really kind of uh, hone in and focus solely on your own brand? So our curation business at the time, I mean, having started there as a D2C focused on curation and then and that was 2014 yeah. um, and then eventually launching Gloreski Skincare in May of 2017. So Gloreski Skincare is actually a little uh, close to three years old now. So it's a very young brand. Yeah. And the catalyst behind that was really the fact that Sarah and I always had a product development philosophy, I think, more than anything. We knew even at the inception of our business, when we were bringing these brands over, that we had a very distinct vision of what we wanted skincare to be in the U.S. And at the time, we were finding these amazing indie brands in the ground in Korea, meeting founders, seeing how they were manufacturing their products and and understanding their philosophy before partnering with them so that we could really bring the brands to life here and give them a platform and a voice here because it wasn't just about product. It was laddering up to a skincare philosophy that we grew up with in Korea, mm-hmm. where skincare is a joy and it's sensorial and it's entertaining and it's the best part of your day versus being overwhelming or this rigid 25 step regimen or a chore that you have to get to and making skincare accessible, effective, relevant, fun, again, was really our, our core mission. And the brands really were part of that, part of that kind of philosophy. Um, but along the way, we were seeing these innovations in Korea, these ingredients that we were really passionate about that weren't being brought to fruition by other brands. I mean, understandably, because this was in our minds. And ultimately, we decided that it would be the right step to launch our own in-house brand and bring that to glowrecipe.com alongside the other curation brands. Little did we know that when we launched the watermelon mask, which was inspired by a very personal memory of growing up with our grandmothers rubbing watermelon rind in our skin in the hot summer months to soothe the skin. 
So this childhood remedy becoming one of our first key hero fruits. And we brought it to life, I think, in a way that was never done before in skincare because fruit wasn't really, and especially watermelon, wasn't really a hero ingredient in skincare at the time. Um, it is much more so now. And uh, pairing that with active ingredients like AHAs, like, like lactic acid or glycolic acid, to tell this comprehensive story around skincare and ingredients um, really, really took off beyond our dreams. So the watermelon mask had a waiting list of several thousand people at launch. Um, it sold out almost immediately. So we like urgently had to make more, learned a lot about forecasting <laughs> at those, in those days. Um, and once that started to take off in the way it did and grow so exponentially, we realized that our customers are really craving more along the lines of development in Glorespe skincare. But with the curation business, there was still our attention was still very divided. So it wasn't an easy decision because these brand partnerships were something that we had continued for almost four years at that point. Um, so we wanted we wanted to really think the decision through. But once we made the decision, we looped in our customers. We walked them through our thought process and. Of course, there were customers that were like, we're going to miss the curations, but we linked a page on our site, actually, where you can still find where these curation brands are found in other retailers in the United States, because we wanted to make sure that connection continued. Um, and then since then, pivoting to Glow Recipe Skincare, I think it's been one of the best strategic decisions that we've ever made. And the brand has really shown that in terms of customer response, in terms of our social media um, following because now the messaging is so much more focused. And recently we hit over 700,000 followers on Instagram. Nice work. Yeah, I think let's, yeah. well, I think there's a couple things. One, obviously having your own brand just from a business model perspective is a much yeah. best, better business to be in if you can be, I think. Um, second, I think when you guys talk about that story, right, of putting watermelon rinds on your backs for sunburns, you know, that's a story that stuck with me when I listened to your guys' podcasts. And I think that storytelling is, you know, I think it's a word that gets overused. But, you know, humans, people connect with stories. Like, that's what they remember. And so having that story connected to the product, I think, is, uh, you know, obviously played a really big role. Or I'd imagine it played a really big role. Um, so let's talk about, so the other thing I think is getting into that kind of idea of storytelling you guys have described yourselves often as brand marketers, right? So brand marketers would, in a world where, you know, performance marketing or, you know, uh, direct to consumer marketing or whatever is, has become more and more in vogue because of the measurability. When you guys say that you're brand marketers, you know, what, uh, what do you mean by that? Like, what, how do you think about that? Um, I'd love to just hear you guys talk about that topic a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the experience that we had previously with L'Oreal has been a, the best training ground that we could have ever asked for. And what we did there mm -hmm. was not just, you know, typical marketing in terms of, you know, the go-to-market strategy or promotion-driven or retail partnership-driven sort of marketing strategy. It was very well-rounded in the sense that we were able to sort of rotate between you know, different brands, but also different functions. Primarily it was marketing, but, you know, every brand had a different channel. So for example, personally, I worked at um, a hair division with, you know, Matrix and Redken, 
products. Um, so that really kind of led to how I could speak about creativity, but also leveraging the ambassadors, if you will, who are the hairdressers and speaks to them, which is very emotional. There's a lot of psychological elements that you have to think about when you develop product to go to market strategy. And then I moved on to Lancome, which is a luxury brand um, in you know Sephora, Macy's, and all these other department stores. So you really have to understand the different retail spaces. Um, and then the last brand was L'Oreal Paris. And from all of these brands, I was able to have that you know experience with different channels, from mass to luxury to hair, but also from a product standpoint, you know what the purchase behavior is and how people sort of you know get to that purchase point um, from desire to the purchase point um, from all different price points and in all these different categories. So I think it really equipped both of us to understand what it means to, to do marketing in terms of product, to execution, to partnership with retailers, to speaking to it in a storytelling way, meaning we were able to you know really learn about building a brand from scratch almost. And I think that gave us a very unique perspective also when we were starting out with Glow Recipe because, you know, we understood that e-com obviously with digital and performance marketing are key to driving the growth and awareness overall. But, but the foundation has to be there. And as a beauty company, you have to, you have to have the best products. Everything stems from your formula and that's where everything starts. Mm-hmm. And without that, you don't have the right tool to go out with all these other 360 legs. So I think, again, we were fortunate enough to understand the, the very core sort of element in terms of conceptualizing, understanding the white space in the market, building what it makes sense um, in that white space with our own angle and twist and our own story that's differentiated to, you know, getting the retailers and other partners, business partners to be on board with your vision and strategy and having them support you. And then also for our e-com, making sure that e-com channel is differentiated from the retailer channels, even though they have the same product assortment, you need to find like different customers who will come to different channels. So navigating that um, is also part of what we do every single day. And also making sure that with every touch point, every communication that we have, our skincare philosophy and our vision comes through. So there are a lot of skincare brands today, but I think the long, the long, you know, lasting brands are the ones that have true core philosophy that speak to what the brand and the formulas stand for. And I think that's when you start to really gain loyalty, especially in this day and age when everyone doesn't really have loyalty to specific brands unless there's a real reason. So we're always challenging ourselves to think about you know, what going back to the roots of like who we are, what do we stand for? How can we make sure that, you know, on Instagram and YouTube, but also on our site, this message comes across in the different relevant messaging, um, you know, at the end of the day for people to get really excited and join this community that loves Glow Recipe for what we stand for. So, so I would say it's a very 360 approach, um, but I think because of the experience that we had, we were able to sort of touch upon every aspect of the business from product to execution and performance marketing definitely is a key driver right now for our e-com, but we didn't really start using these affiliate programs, for example, or digital ads until um, a couple of years ago, I have to say, because we were very nimble about how mm-hmm. we wanted to spend our budget. And if if we didn't see an immediate ROI, we had to you know shift gears and make some quick decisions because we had some short-term goals 
with, you know, of course the long-term goals, but we needed to make these little steps to get to that level. So, so it's been a really amazing journey in that sense where we were, I think as a startup, the beauty of having a startup, as you know, is you're able to experiment different things along the way and then stick with what works for your own company. And along the way, you have so many people that give you advice or, you know, lectures or tips, um, <laughs> which are helpful, but you have to take those with a grain of salt because nobody knows your brand like you do. Um, and you have a unique point of difference because of how you've been doing your, your marketing and, you know, strategy overall. So, um, that's kind of where we stand today. It's a mix of everything, but it didn't really be a full on 360 until pretty recently. Yeah, Christine, you mentioned kind of 750,000 followers, which is a lot of followers, um, probably 749,000 more than I did. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, what were some of the investments that you guys think help you got, like, how did you get there? What were some of the investments that worked? What were some of the investments that didn't work? Um, and think of this inclusively, right? This could be, you know, uh, paid ads, right? But this could also be uh, headcount, product giftings, events, experiences. Um, you know, what, what are the investments that you think got you there? Yeah. Um, and what are some of the things that you maybe tried that didn't work or that, you know, other people said, hey, you should really do this, but hey, that's actually a terrible idea. Would love to hear about your your kind of your learnings there. Yeah, uh, so it's seven hundred seventeen. Just want to make sure I didn't overstate anything. Okay, <laughs> I got the number almost one. seven. <laughs> no worries. Um, but our Instagram, we in the early days, it was me and Sarah in our office photographing with our phones in a very dark room. Um, these very kind of raw visuals, and I think visual territory has very much improved <laughs> leaps and bounds thanks to a very talented team that does this much, much better than we ever can. Um, but that sense of raw authenticity is something that we still try to bring to our Instagram, no matter what the following is. And what I mean by that is there's a couple of aspects, a community um, from the very beginning, when we were a D2C site focused on curations, we would take our community along with the journey. We would go online, go live in, on, in Korea or on stories and say, hey guys, this is I'm in the streets of Myeongdong right now and this is what I'm curating. What do you guys want to see? And so those even in those very early days, um, we were utilizing social media as a platform for true engagement and conversation. And because of that, I think our customers have always felt like they have been with us. They very much have been driving this together with us. And when we launched our first blueberry, our first two products, for example, it was a blueberry cleanser along with the watermelon mask and customers had feedback about the tube format. We reformulated the packaging of that right away. Um, and within a year, the new pump packaging was out. So as a brand being nimble about that type of feedback and response cycle has really helped us to build up this community of, of fans, I would say that are very vocal, very passionate, and very involved. So recently, we actually spun off a community platform on Real Glow Gang. So that's the Instagram handle. And there, we post in a way where it's very different from Glow Recipe, which is more elevated aesthetic visuals. Um, Real Glow Gang is behind the scenes. It's questions, memes. It's just everything you would want to talk about in skincare. If your skincare routine is a movie, for example, which movie would it be? And then the comments mm -hmm. and we engage directly our team engages in there so it's really a, a 
a space of very safe and very active discussion. It is private because we wanted to make it a safe space, but everyone, of course, is welcome once they um, submit to join. And it's been amazing to see that type of discussion um, flow there. And we also get a lot of inspiration and ideas there. So recently for our, our toner launch, which launched last Friday, the Watermelon Glow Pore Tight Toner, um, we previewed it first on Real Glow Gang before we even showed it to anyone on Glow Recipe. So they really feel like that insider, the members of this community that get that first access. Um, and just seeing that preliminary response also helped us to gauge how the toner would do. And I think it's it's been a tremendous kind of new kind of venture for us. Um, another aspect is that our content team has always been one of our core hiring strategies. So first of all, every member of our team, a phrase that Sarah coined, um, is a content creator and storyteller in their own right. Whether you're, you have a social media presence cool. or whether you don't, whether you're marketing or creative or content, you are a storyteller and a content creator. So bringing that to life in your respective discipline has always been the expectation of our team, which they rise to magnificently. And even within our content team, we have always tried to find people that are really, really passionate about beauty, but bringing this beauty to life in different ways. So whether that's the educational approach, because we've always been focused on skincare education, ingredient education, how to make the most out of your routine and bringing that to life, or whether it's using visuals that are just really aesthetically disruptive. So recently our toner launch post um, which was the photo of our toner bottle along with some ingredients actually was one of the strongest performing posts in terms of engagement ever in our history. And we constantly challenge ourselves to bring that next level of delight to our customer, or it could be using models that are of all different skin types, tones, and even textures. So recently we did a shoot and most of our shoots in the past year or so have been retouch free and makeup free whenever possible. And we communicate this openly to our customers. We show models with acne prone skin because skin is skin and that's the reality of it. And I think there's also appreciation around us being open about that and, and putting those images out there so that people have a, a wide range of things to relate to and understand that there's the scope and kind of vision of beauty that we have in mind is very diverse. What's, what's interesting about what you say is there's a few things that we see really consistently across brands that are having a lot of success, yeah. both in general and in the data that we track, right? Both EMV data, social data, et cetera, which is one, incorporating feedback directly from your community, yeah. right? So as you guys know, uh, L'Oreal's product development cycle is probably a little bit longer than <laughs> yours is, uh, probably a little bit more robust. Um, and I think, you know, the most extreme example of this we've seen is ColourPop, right? So ColourPop, right. they will get feedback like in comments and then make product decisions based on that and have it, you know, developed and ready within days, uh, which is just a wild turnaround right. uh, and, and the advantage of having manufacturing vertically integrated there for them. Um, but having that, the community element, right? So viewing it as a community, I think three, getting everybody involved. So generally very large teams are dedicated to this stuff. Uh we often see big mistakes being assigning an agency to this, hiring a one person team and asking them to run all of the social media, which just isn't feasible. Mm -hmm. um, 
And probably the best example of it was with uh, the best way I've heard it described was when Nix was acquired by L'Oreal. You know, they came in expecting this like super digitally forward brand, right? So scaled up paid ads, all these kinds of things. And what they found, or the way it was described to me that I thought was fitting, was it was the most human brand that they had ever acquired. Mm. Um, and um, and the reason for that, right, is what the internet and technology allows you to do is it allows you to scale up those human interactions in a way that you never could before, right? Um, as a brand, you never used to be able to connect one-to-one with your customer. You sold it to the retailer who sold it to the customer, and you were really disconnected yeah. from that. Um, so being able to do that at scale, I think is just a super, super powerful thing. Um, and not, not surprising to hear that that's how you guys are approaching it. Um, so let's talk about the influencer marketing space specifically a little bit. So, you know, obviously the elements, all the kind of core building blocks that you guys are talking about contribute to overall community growth. Um, do you think about influencer marketing as being like a separate thing? Um, is that something that you have a team dedicated towards? What's your approach there? Or has most of this stuff just kind of happened organically as part of your general uh, customer management program? Yeah, so it's really interesting because we talk about this all the time, actually. And I don't think there's always, you know, a right or wrong answer when it comes to approaching influencers. Um, But what I can tell you is that, you know, these are people that are like the Glow Gang, which is what we call our community, who, you know, if they really like the brand, um, if they like the philosophy and the brand story of the brand, they will talk about you. But, you know, there are so many brands and it's a very saturated market. So how do you get them to actually get excited about you, I think, is the number one challenge. Right. So what we were able to do is, you know, we, we actually have if you were to kind of split organic versus paid influencer partnerships. Um, the organic piece way outpaces the paid partnerships. I mean, we've done we've done totally. very few paid partnerships to to date. Um, but you know, from the very beginning of when we were trying to get our the word out about Glow Recipe, we tried to reach out to all of these influencers that we we were personally following, but also we knew had you know a lot of influence mm-hmm. in the industry. We, we did a lot of research um, and because we were following some of them, we understood, you know, what type of skin concerns they had or what they were interested in or what they were talking about recently. So we could actually customize our communication and, for example, our email or this gift, um, you know, that we had to seed to these influencers were customized to each and every influencers, um, influencer that we reached out to. So that was, I mean, that was the very beginning of our business. And I, I would say, Christy yeah. and I, I mean, we spent countless, I mean, we spent two weeks without sleeping properly because we were so passionate to do this. And it was, <laughs> you know, the way at that time that we could think of that could, you know, get our name out there. So we actually sent out, um, including, you know, press and influencers, 600 emails between the two of us. And we split, <laughs> we split 300 and 300 and we personalized each and every message and sent customized skincare routines for them. So yeah, wow. so it was a lot of manual work, but it actually set us a really amazing foundation for understanding all these people that were influential in the industry. And from then, we actually got over 30% of responses, which is very high for a cold email. Um, and, and then from there, I think we were able to build relationships because we, we take each and every sort of response with a lot of 
you know, gratitude. So we wanted to, you know, continue to have this conversation with them. You know, if some of the influencers lived in LA or, you know, some other state, whenever we traveled, we would take the time to grab coffee or breakfast with each and every person as a thank you, but also to keep them posted and updated with what we're up to um, and share the products. And I think a lot of them that we, you know, built relationships from day one are now friends of the brand. Um, they genuinely, some of them are genuinely passionate about our philosophy and the formulations mm -hmm. that we create. And um, they really support us. So we created this, you know, really nice network of friends, I would say, who have, you know, similar interests basically to support one another and similar passion, which is beauty and skincare. And we genuinely talk about it online, sometimes through, you know, Instagram live chats or DMs on personal levels, or just, you know, whenever they have a product feature moment, they would talk about us. I think that's kind of built over time. And then all these influencers have their own network of friends. So for example, when we launched our new avocado eye cream last year with retinol, we, we wanted to come, we wanted to convey this message of the main ingredient encapsulated retinol that releases slowly over time. So we thought, you know, what would be a great idea to convey this in a fun, skin entertaining way? And, um, we actually invited one of the influencers, um, Angel, uh, Mac Daddy, which I'm sure you know, <laughs> who yep. is passionate, passionate about performing and dancing. And he's amazing at it. And we wanted him to perform this slow release of encapsulated retinol on our stage at our, mm -hmm. our launch party. So that, um, was, you know, really exciting for us, but also him personally, because that's his passion beyond beauty. And he invited all of his influencer friends who are, you know, huge influencers with huge following that sometimes we didn't really have access to. So it was actually, you know, a great way to tap into that network and genuinely have everyone get excited about this product. And I think um, you can speak to it better than us, but I think we had a really amazing EMV for the launch of Avocado Retinol, right? And I think that's, again, mm -hmm. a, an organic approach, but it was built over time. You know, it doesn't happen over overnight. You really have to build and cherish and nurture these relationships and continue to follow up and, and make sure that you have, you know, personal face time with a lot of these people. And that was our strategy. So my favorite part about all that is like when, like, I didn't know what your approach was. I'm coming into this, <laughs> point, right? Um, and it just mirrors exactly what we tell people to do, right? And obviously our, our role in this is not to be an agency. It's not to be something that tells you how to run your programs. But I do think when we're thinking about how we build out our software, you know, knowing what the best are doing, like knowing what the approach is that's working really well for people. Um, it's pretty integral to making sure yeah. that you're building the right things to help them accomplish right. that goal. And so, you know, talking about relationship driven, long term, right? Like all of these elements are things that are very different than the way that uh, I think a lot of people have approached the problem, which is like a media buying opportunity or, right. you know, uh, like a celebrity partnership or paid relationship in that way. When it's really, it's just not that, right? Like if you went over, uh, Mac Daddy to being a fan of your brand, and he talks about you, you know, once a month or once every couple months for the next ten years. Like, how much is that worth to you? It's a lot, right? It's a lot more than you got in finding him and paying him to talk about you one time. Um, and so, yeah, it's just great to hear that. Um, 
So now that you guys have gotten a little bit bigger as a company, you know, how much of that are you guys managing? You know, what's your, you know, for those that are interested in how you manage and structure your own marketing organization, how do you guys kind of do that now? So we have a rockstar PR team, including our team member that you said hi to at the beginning of um, this podcast. And <laughs> our team is really, it's, we call it small, small but mighty. Um, there's a content team that we discussed earlier, a marketing team, a team that focuses on PR, in-house creative, and a sales team that works with the retailer partners that we have. And then of course, finance and ops. Um, so overall, I think what really the, the superpower of the team is, is coming together to collaborate on ideas. So PR will have a great idea or content will have a great idea. And then if everyone is aligned, you run with it. And it doesn't matter whether you're an assistant manager or a director or whatever level you are at. If you have a good idea, bring it to the table. Your voice is always heard and tomorrow your idea could be executed. So I think in terms of that, the, the team has felt very empowered to speak up and propose new ways to do things and and just take a different approach to certain things. Um, I think that an example being with Toner, um, because of every pivot that we've had to do recently, we I think that our team has been quite nimble and we're once again really proud of them for being so resilient throughout this this time. And we actually did a series of virtual death sites with editors instead of meeting them in person. And the way the virtual death site was set up was very thoughtful from the way we sent products ahead of time so that the editor could access and test it before the way the meeting was set up, the way the meeting was led. And we led them through application and kind of an at-home facial process. And I think that it was incredibly well-received. Um and has actually given us new ideas for go forward as well. Um, we used to have larger events, um, and that's not to say we wouldn't in the future. Of course, like having those IRL touch points are so important. But having done this recent launch completely digitally, I think has been eye opening for us. And it's all thanks to the creativity and the, the grit of our, our team for making it happen. Yeah. That's really cool. It's it's going to be a totally new world. I mean, obviously, this is a this this podcast is a microcosm for it. But, <laughs> you know, we're gonna. <laughs> I mentioned it before we got on, but you know, we're doing an all day conference, all digital. Oh, wow. It's gonna be interesting. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Uh, hopefully, it goes over well. I can't imagine it'll be too bad. As long as we have <laughs> folks like you. All know. Um, okay, so I know that we had kind of an hour set aside, so I want to make sure that I'm respectful of your guys' time. Um, but before I let you go, uh, we did have some fun questions just to close yeah. it out. Um, and I'll try and direct it at one person specifically so that you guys won't have to shout out both at the same time. Um, so let's go through. Um, all right. So, Christine, you spoke last. So we'll go with you first. Um, best or worst show that you've watched during the COVID crisis? Oh, my God. Love is Blind. Best show <laughs> ever. <laughs> Oh my God. Or worst. Or, or worst. I'm either not sure. Way. Like, worst, yeah. I think it was like the extremes of the show. Just, it was great. It was very consuming for yeah. me. Yeah. And our team, of course, watched it. So we had a, a good heated discussion about it afterwards. <laughs> Is that what's, that's the one where you can't see yeah. through the walls, right? No, so you're talking yeah. to the walls. And yeah, yeah. Make a proposal without having ever seen each okay, other. Okay. So I've, yeah. 
I wanted to make sure that was the one because I've seen that one. Um, and I agree. Terrible. The Have you seen the new one that just recently came out? Oh, the one yeah. that's like, they, it's, it's horrible. I think they it's like, really, it's, it's a little insane. <laughs> Yeah, they put so they put like 10 very I think it's like 10 ish very attractive people in like a house and then you know uh, basically tell them here's a hundred thousand dollars you can't if any of you kiss or do anything worse than that money gets deducted from the pot and so like don't you know you're not allowed to do anything with each other. Um, and then, of course, the first episode, they try to get them all riled up. It's it's kind of like even too hot to handle. Yep, yep, yep. It's in my queue. Yeah. I'll, I'll get there. So it's a Sarah. What about you? What's uh, what's your best or worst show you've watched uh, during the last lock or during the lockdown? Um, so what I love to do is whenever I watch shows, I love talking about it with my friends. And recently, my friends have been talking about this Korean drama that was. <laughs> It's very, Christine was telling me about this as well. It's called The World of the Married um, in Korean, but uh, it actually okay. has a BBC English version on Netflix called Dr. Foster, which was the original one. So I recently watched it. It's very um, entertaining. It can be dark at times, but uh, it really talks about the value of family. And um, I was hooked and I watched it in a matter of three days, the whole thing. So yeah, I, I recommend it. <laughs> and then after this, I'm going to move you, on to the world of the Merrick, which was a nice, you know, spinoff of that. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. I, w- I wonder if, can I get it in subtitles? Is that possible? You, you can. I, I mean, Dr. Right? Foster is like the original version. So you can watch it on Netflix first and then go on yeah. to the Korean one. But yes, you can guess the title. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So let's stick with you. So, what is uh, the one thing that you miss most about living in Korea, other than potentially? I don't know if your family's there, but you know, just throw kind of family, uh, family and friends out to the side. So, favorite food? Yeah, favorite um, facials. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, Korean facials are honestly the best in the world. I I can't speak highly enough of those, and 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 the spectrum is so wide you can get a lunchtime express facial for like 30 minutes and still get amazingly glowing results or you can go all out for a three-hour body to face massage um, and still you know feel extra relaxed and it really depends on how you feel or your schedule there's even an app in korea kind of like open table where you can book um, facials you know depending on the location you're at with the time slots it's oh, wow. insane. It's only in Korea that you can see that. And it's very <laughs> advanced. Uh, I really miss that. <laughs> I dig it. What about, what about you, Christine? I would say going to the bathhouse with my mom and grandma was always a kind of ritual growing up. And so I'd like to take my daughter to the bathhouse when we're in Korea together. And it's just a great way to get your self-care in. It's like an extended bathtub slash swimming pool hybrid, right? Um and that's actually where we first learned about like natural ingredients on the skin. Like, for example, my grandmother would always bring milk that was about to go bad and splash it on her face to make the skin softer. And later I realized when I was studying like skincare and beauty that it's because milk has lactic acid in it, which makes your skin smoother. Mm. So like those little home remedies um, are all like very good memories that we have growing up. Very cool. Um, well, actually, I have one last question, just because I want to see some turmoil. So, 
Um, <laughs> um, so I have lots of ideas that our team won't let me do. Oh. And so what is oh. the one product? <laughs> what's the one product that you want to create that the team won't let you create, <laughs> if there is one? Oh. <laughs> I know Sarah's got something on her mind. What's something you're like, I really want to make this, but nobody else agrees with me and everybody else thinks it's a bad idea. Mm. And there may not be one. Yeah, I don't think it's one product for me. It's um, it's a full line. I want to go. Okay. <laughs> and, yeah, and I I love makeup, and I I'm a skincare addict, but I always had passion for color from a very young age. So I want to make a makeup line that is very different and unique. But that would be <laughs> that would be my dream as a next step. It's a line. Minor <laughs> undertaking. Minor undertaking. Very minor. Very. Yeah, the team would be shaking right now listening to this, but um, <laughs> you know, one can dream. Well, we can. We can always cut this later. We can always cut yeah. this later. Um, cool. All right, guys. Well, I want to let you go, um, but thank you so much for joining. Congrats again on all the success. Um, I hope you guys continue to do so well. Um, Sarah, I'm very glad we got to match yellows yeah. here with pineapple. <laughs> I got a. For episodes three and four, I cut out the Hawaiian shirts and I got chastised by the team. So I mean, they're back. Do you? Um, yeah. I guess so. And I've got this is a the the new fish. They've been in all of my webinars. Wow! This week. So this is my father-in-law's like uh, you know as many leather-bound books in here. <laughs> uh, but anyways, <laughs> all right. Anyways, I'll let you guys. I'll let you guys Thank go. You Thanks so much us. for joining. Really Thank appreciate you. it. And yeah. um, wish you guys we all the luck in the future. Okay? Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. Bye. Bye, guys. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.